You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Color. This is the last lecture in this collection, Lecture 12, given in Dornach on the 4th of January, 1924, and it is entitled The Hierarchies and the Nature of the Rainbow. Continuing with what I gave you in the course that took place during the Christmas Foundation meeting, I should like in the three coming lectures, which will be held in the evenings, to tell you something about the way in which research of spiritual life has developed in modern times. The development of modern spiritual science is often spoken about under the particular heading of Rosicrucianism and other occult names, and I should like to take the opportunity to describe for you the inner nature of this spiritual research. By way of introduction, I will have to tell you something about the whole way of thought that became established around the 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries A.D., and which did not completely disappear until the end of the 18th century, and even then it was still retained in a few instances in the 19th century. So I am not going to proceed historically, but would like to present a number of personalities and tell you about their relationship to a knowledge of the world. We do not usually give any thought to how very different the whole way of thinking was a relatively short time ago in people who considered themselves knowledgeable. We speak of chemical substances nowadays, 70 or 80 of them, without being at all aware that we are actually saying practically nothing when we call a substance oxygen or nitrogen and so on. For oxygen is something that is only present under certain conditions of warmth and other conditions of our particular earth existence. Surely an intelligent person cannot possibly connect the concept of reality with anything which, when its temperature is raised so and so many degrees, no longer remains as it is when it is under the effect of the conditions in which we live as physical human beings. And the desire to foster the kind of thoughts which go beyond what is relative and reach real existence was an essential part of the research of the early and middle period of the Middle Ages. I will, therefore, set the time of transition as being between the ninth and 10th centuries A.D., because before that time, people's whole outlook was extremely spiritual. For instance, a really knowledgeable person of the ninth century would never have dreamt of thinking of angels, archangels, or seraphim as any less real, from the point of view of reality, I mean, than a physical human being one sees with one's eyes. Before the tenth century, knowledgeable people would certainly have spoken of spiritual beings, that is, so-called cosmic intelligence, as beings one meets with, even though they knew they had long outlived the time in which it was normal for humans to see such beings.
They knew, however, that under special circumstances they could perceive the results of their activities. We must not forget that a great number of priests, Catholic priests, were very aware, right into the ninth and tenth centuries, that they encountered spiritual beings, cosmic intelligences, in the course of performing Mass. During the ninth and tenth centuries, however, a direct connection with the actual cosmic intelligence gradually faded from men's consciousness and was replaced by a consciousness of the elements of the cosmos, earth, fluid or water, air, and warmth or fire. And whereas they used to speak of cosmic intelligences that gave order to the movements of the planets and guided them past the fixed stars and so on, they now spoke about the immediate environment of the earth. They talked of the elements of earth, water, air, and fire, but not yet of chemical substances in the modern sense. That came much later. But you would be quite wrong if you were to imagine that even in the 13th or 14th centuries, and in certain respects as late as the 18th century, knowledgeable people had the same conception of warmth, air, water, and earth as modern people have. Nowadays people only speak of warmth as a bodily condition. Real warmth, ether, is not mentioned anymore. And air and water have become so very abstract that we certainly need to look back at what these conceptions used to be. So I should like to give you a picture, today, of the kind of language the scholars of those times used when speaking of these things. When I wrote my title Occult Science, I was obliged to bring the evolution of the earth into at least some sort of harmony with the customary ideas of today. In the 13th and the 12th centuries, it could have been written differently. For instance, in a certain chapter of Occult Science, you would have found the following. First of all, there would have been a description of what the beings that can be called the first hierarchy are like, the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones. The seraphim would have been described as beings who do not distinguish between subject and object, for in them these coincide. They would never say, quote, there are objects outside me, close quote, but, quote, the world is, and I am the world, and the world is I, close quote. For they only know about themselves, and human beings have a weak reflection of this experience, through which the seraphim know themselves, when they are filled with glowing enthusiasm. It is difficult to describe glowing enthusiasm to a man of today, for at the beginning of the 19th century they knew more about it than present-day people do. At that time it could still happen that while a poem was being recited people became what we today would call crazy. They were filled with movement and warmth. Nowadays people actually freeze just when one imagines they ought to be enthusiastic. It is this element of enthusiasm, especially characteristic of Middle and Eastern Europe, which, when it is raised to a level of common consciousness, can give one a picture of the inner life of the seraphim. The consciousness of the cherubim is to be pictured as an element so clear and light-filled that thought immediately becomes light and irradiates all things. And the element of the thrones is one of supporting the cosmos, 
through the power of grace. That is just a bare sketch. I could speak about it at great length. What I wanted to tell you to begin with was that in those earlier times people would have tried to describe the essential qualities of the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones. They would have said the choir of the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones cooperate together, the thrones forming a kernel, and there's a picture, the cherubim raying out their own being of light from this center, and the seraphim enclosing all this with a covering of enthusiasm which rays far out into cosmic space. All that I am drawing is made up of beings, the thrones in the middle, the cherubim encircling them, and the seraphim on the outside. These are beings who interweave in movement and in thinking, willing and feeling. They possess real being. If another being with the necessary power of perception were to pass through the space in which the thrones had formed a center, the cherubim, a kind of ring around it, and the seraphim, a kind of rounding off on the outside, this being who had thus entered into the sphere of activity of the first hierarchy, would have felt differentiated warmth, greater warmth in some places, less warmth in others. All this would be of a soul-spiritual nature. Yet at the same time as being a soul experience, it would also be a physical experience to our senses. That is, while the being who would feel soul warmth, it would really be the same warmth as you feel when you are in a heated room. An assembling of beings of the first hierarchy once took place in this way in the universe and created Saturn existence. Warmth is merely the expression of beings. In itself the warmth is nothing. It merely expresses the fact that beings are there. I should like to use a picture which might help to make this clear. Imagine someone whom you are fond of. His presence gives you a feeling of warmth. Then imagine an extremely abstract person saying, quote, Actually, I am not in the least interested in that person. I will think him away. I am only interested in the warmth he creates. Close quote. But he would not say, quote, I am only interested in the warmth he creates. Close quote. He would say, quote, I am only interested in the warmth. Close quote. He would be talking nonsense, of course, wouldn't he? For if the person creating the warmth is gone, the warmth is not there either. Warmth is the kind of thing which is there only when the person is there. It is nothing in itself. The person must be there for the warmth to be there. So the seraphim, cherubim and thrones must be there, otherwise the warmth is not there either. The warmth is only the revelation of seraphim, cherubim and thrones. They then went further and said, quote, No other beings than the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones have the power to create such a thing and set it in the cosmos. Only this highest of hierarchies is capable of doing so. But by doing this at the start of a cosmic process of becoming, evolution could go on. The sons, so to speak, of the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones could then lead evolution further. And in actual fact, the beings of the second hierarchy, created by the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones, the curiotities, dunamis, and exousiae, entered the space in which the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones 
had created the warmth of Saturn. These younger beings, cosmically younger beings, of course, now come upon the scene. And what did these cosmically younger beings do? Whereas the cherubim, seraphim and thrones had revealed themselves in the element of warmth, the beings of the second hierarchy now revealed themselves in the element of light. Here, and speaking of the red background in the drawing, the Saturn part is dark and is giving forth warmth. And within this dark world of Saturn existence, the creation of the Exusiae, Dunamis and Curiotites, the sons of the first hierarchy, is coming into being. The arrival of the second hierarchy means that the planet begins to shine from out of the Saturn warmth. This inner illumination is connected with the densification of the warmth. From out of the undivided element of warmth, air arises. And on the one hand we have the second hierarchy appearing within the revelation of light. But you must clearly realize that it is really beings that are appearing. To a being with the necessary power of perception, light appears. The paths of these beings is marked by light. When light shines somewhere under certain circumstances, dark shadow arises. And with the appearance of the second hierarchy in the form of light, shadow did indeed arise. What was this shadow? It was air. And until the 15th and 16th centuries, people actually knew what air was. Nowadays, people only know that air consists of oxygen, nitrogen, and so on, which is not saying much more than that a clock, for instance, is made of silver and glass, which does not tell you anything about the clock. To say the air consists of oxygen and nitrogen tells you nothing about air as a cosmic phenomenon. But if you know that from the cosmic point of view air is the shadow of light, it tells you a great deal about air. Thus, when the second hierarchy entered Saturn warmth, light actually made its appearance, and speaking of white rays, and also the light shadow of light, air, wavy green lines, and when these arise there is sun. That is how they would have spoken in the 13th and 14th centuries. Let us go on. The next phase of evolution was brought about by the sons of the second hierarchy, the Archai, Arch angels and angels. These beings brought something new into the shining element which came first of all with the second hierarchy and which had brought its shadow, the airy darkness, with it. Not the Saturn kind of darkness, the neutral kind which was simply an absence of light, but the kind produced by the opposite of light. The third hierarchy, the Archai, archangels and angels, brought to this evolution an element from out of their own being, akin to our desire or longing. Say an archai or angel being entered here, and there's a diagram, a point to the right on the ray of light, and encountered a place where there was light. Then the following happened. Through being receptive to this light, this being acquired a longing for darkness. These angels bore light into the darkness, or darkness into the light. They became the mediators and messengers between light and darkness. 
and what had previously only shone in the light and brought its shadow, the airy darkness after it, now burst into color, changing from one color to another, as the light appeared in the darkness and the darkness in the light. It is the third hierarchy who conjured forth colors out of light and darkness. You know, there is something in the way of an historical document you can look at in this connection. In Aristotle's time, if people asked in the mysteries about the origin of colors, they still knew that these involved the third hierarchy. This is why Aristotle said in his title Harmony of Color that color is the interaction of light and darkness. People, however, lost sight of this spiritual element, this way of seeing the beings of the first hierarchy behind warmth, the beings of the second hierarchy behind light and its shadow, the darkness, and the third hierarchy behind the cosmic significance of the bursting forth of colors. And nothing remained but Newton's ill-fated theory of color, which caused smiles among the initiates right into the 18th century and after that became the creed of professional physicists. One has to have lost all knowledge of the spiritual world to be able to speak in the manner of Newton's color theory. If you had received a prod from the spiritual world as Goethe did, you would have put up a resistance. You would put the right thing in its place as he did and grumble a lot. Goethe was never so abusive about anything as he was about Newton's ridiculous nonsense. We cannot comprehend things like that today for the simple reason that nowadays the physicists would think you an idiot if you did not accept Newton's color theory. Yet it was not the case that Goethe stood completely alone in his time. He was a solitary figure among the people who professed this kind of thing publicly but the knowledgeable ones knew very well that color arose on a spiritual level. As you know, air is the shadow of the light. And, just as under certain circumstances, when light arises, there is a dark shadow. It happens that when color is there and works as a reality, and color could work as a reality as long as it entered the element of air, that is, when the color flashes up in the element of air and is active as a reality, not merely as a reflection, then, just as counter-pressure can arise through pressure, the element of water, fluid, arises out of real color. Just as, in a cosmic sense, air is the shadow of light, so water is the reflection, the creation of cosmic color. You will say, you do not understand this. However, just try actually to grasp color in its real sense. Take red. Do you really believe that the essence of red is only the neutral surface you usually take it for? Red is something that makes an attack on you, as I have often mentioned. Red repels you and makes you want to run away. You want to run after blue and purple. It keeps on running away from you and getting deeper and deeper. Colors are full of life. Colors are a whole world. And when the soul element experiences colors, it feels it has come into a movement. People merely gape at the rainbow nowadays. If you only look at it with some imagination, you will see elemental beings very active in it. And these elemental beings show us some remarkable phenomena. 
Here, red and yellow, you see elemental beings coming out of the rainbow all the time. These then move across here. The moment they arrive at the lower end of the green, they are drawn in. You see them disappearing here, green and blue. On the other side, they come out again. To anyone who looks at the rainbow with imagination, it presents a spectacle of spirit pouring out and disappearing again. It really shows you something like a spiritual cylinder. It is wonderful. You also notice that when these things come out, they are full of fear, and when they go in, they have absolutely invincible courage. Looking at the red and yellow, fear streams out, and looking at the blue and purple, you get the feeling that it is full of everything of the nature of courage. Now imagine that not only the rainbow is there, but if I draw a cross-section here, there's another drawing, and the rainbow stands this way, turned by an angle of 90 degrees, the beings will come out here and disappear there. Fear here and courage there. The courage disappears again. The eye, E-Y-E, would be directed this way. The rainbow here and the red is now there, yellow and so on. The rainbow acquires density. So you will easily be able to imagine how the watery element arises from it. And in this element of water, there live spiritual beings who are really a kind of image of the beings of the third hierarchy. It could certainly be said that if you approach the knowledgeable people of the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries, these are the sort of things you must understand. You could not even understand the later ones. You cannot understand Albertus Magnus if you read him with present-day knowledge. You must read him with the knowledge of the fact that that kind of spirituality was still a reality to him. Then you will begin to understand how he uses words and expresses himself. This is how air and water come into being, as a reflection of the hierarchies. In the course of the hierarchies entering into evolution, the second hierarchy appeared in the form of light, and the third hierarchy in the form of color. When this last creation occurred, evolution had reached moon existence. And then comes the fourth hierarchy. I am describing it now according to the thinking of the 12th and 13th centuries. Now it is the turn of the fourth hierarchy. We do not speak of this hierarchy at all, but in the 12th and 13th centuries they certainly did. What is this fourth hierarchy? It is the human being. Man himself is the fourth hierarchy. But they certainly did not understand this fourth hierarchy to be the peculiar two-legged creature which now goes about the world growing older every day. For at that time man in his present form seemed to really be knowledgeable people to be particu particularly peculiar read that again, for at that time man in his present form seemed to really knowledgeable people to be particularly peculiar. They spoke of the original human being before the fall, who still existed in such a form that he possessed just as much power over the earth as the angels, archangels and archai had over moon existence, the second hierarchy over sun existence and the first hierarchy over Saturn existence. They spoke of man in his original earthly form, and thus they could speak of him as the fourth hierarchy. 
And with the fourth hierarchy there came something which, although it was a gift from the higher hierarchies, was like a possession the higher hierarchies had guarded but had not themselves made use of. And this was life. Into the world of scintillating color which I have sketched for you there came life. You will ask, quote, Prior to this time were things not alive? Close quote. My dear friends, you can learn the answer to this from man himself. Your ego and astral body do not have life, yet they exist. On the spiritual and soul level, life is not needed. Life begins with your etheric body, which is of the nature of an external sheath. Thus life did not come into the sphere of our earthly evolution until the time of earth existence, which was after the moon existence. The sparkling world of color became filled with life. It was not only that the angels, archangels, and so on acquired a longing to bring darkness into light and light into darkness, thus calling forth a play of colors and the planet. They also felt the urge to experience inwardly and develop the inner life of color, to feel weakness and indolence when darkness dominates light, and activity when light dominates darkness. For what happens when you walk? The light in you dominates the darkness, and when you sit down in a lazy way, darkness dominates the light. That is an activity, an interplay of soul color. With the appearance of mankind, the fourth hierarchy, the interplay of color was interpenetrated by life. And at this moment of cosmic becoming, these forces that were beginning to be active in the play of color started forming contours. The force of life, which rounded off the colors within themselves, giving them edges and corners, brought solid crystal into being. And so we have arrived at earth existence. Considerations like these were the basic truths of the alchemists, occultists, Rosicrucians, etc., who flourished from the ninth to the 14th, 15th centuries in particular, although history does not tell us much about them today. And there were even a few stragglers right up to the 18th and even the beginning of the 19th centuries, who by that time, however, were regarded as odd. Then these things were totally hidden. And the modern world outlook has brought things to the following pass. Imagine I have a human being in front of me. I stop taking any interest in this person and just take his clothes and hang them on a tailor's dummy with a head-shaped knob at the top and take no further interest in the man. I think that this is the person. What do I care that something like that could be inside these clothes? That is the human being, the clothes stand. That was in fact what happened with the elements of nature. People were no longer interested in the fact of there being a first hierarchy behind warmth or fire, a second hierarchy behind light and air, a third hierarchy behind so-called chemical ether, color ether, etc., and water, and a fourth hierarchy or man behind the element of life and the earth. Just get out the tailor's dummy and hang the clothes on it. That was the first stage. The second stage begins in Kantian style. Kantianism takes over, and now that people have the clothes stand with the clothes hanging on it, they start philosophizing as to what the thing in itself of these clothes might be. 
and they arrive at the conclusion that they actually cannot know the thing in itself of the clothes. Very ingenious. Of course, when they first of all take the human being away and have the clothes stand with clothes on it, one can then philosophize about the clothes and arrive at a lot of speculations. It is a clothes stand, isn't it, with clothes hanging on it? And they either philosophize in Kantian style, quote, one cannot know the thing in itself, close quote, or in Hemholtzian style, where they think, quote, of course these clothes cannot have forms. There must be a lot of whirling particles, atoms inside, which beat against them and maintain the clothes in their form, close quote. This is how thinking developed later. But it is shadowy and abstract. However, this is the kind of thinking and speculating we live with today, and with this we form our whole modern world outlook. And if we do not admit that our thinking is atomistic, then it is all the more so. For it will be a long while before people admit that they should not be dreaming up the whirl of the atoms, but ought to be putting the human being back in his clothes. This is just what spiritual science must try to do. Today I wanted to give you a a number of pictures showing how people thought in those days and what can actually be read in medieval writings and which has now died out. Just because it has died out, interesting facts like the following come to light. A modern chemist from the north has republished a passage from Basilius Valentinus and read it in terms of modern chemistry. Then, of course, he could say nothing other than that what he finds in Basilius Valentinus is not nonsense, because it really looks like that if you understand it in terms of chemistry, imagining yourself standing in the laboratory with retorts and other instruments, doing modern experiments. What is actually written in Basilius Valentinus, however, is a kind of embryology expressed pictorially. It is a fragment of embryology. If one simply applies the modern mode of thought, one has an apparent laboratory experiment, which of course makes no sense. For you cannot execute a bit of embryology in the laboratory, unless you happen to be Wagner, but he was after all more at the stage of earlier centuries still. These things must be understood again today, and in connection with the great truths I was permitted to give during the Christmas Foundation meeting, There are indeed a few more things I should like to say about the history of man's inner life in the past few centuries of world evolution. The end of lecture 12 and the end of the book, The Collected Lectures Concerning Color by Rudolf Steiner.